Hey everybody, and welcome back to Holiday Stuff You Should Know. This particular one, I guess, is New Year's Stuff You Should Know. Hey, there we go. Anyway, as you are listening to this, I'm out of town, and so is Graham, and Thomas is dealing with family stuff, and so we don't have a chance to get together and record normal episodes, but I didn't want to like, leave you guys hanging entirely over the the break. You know, we have, we have Patreon supporters, and they deserve something for their for their cash, and the rest of you deserve something for free, I suppose. Anyway... I thought I would read some of my favorite essays and pieces of literature as just a little thing to tide you over if you if you just you got a classical itch and you got to scratch it. So this is part two of Seneca's letter to his mother. He was a famous Stoic. And this is one of those pieces of Stoic literature that from which we gather the Stoic philosophy. So this is one of, I think, two of his letters that are the most famous. Uh, The first half is two episodes ago. I think if you want to go listen to it and I read the first 10 parts of this letter and this will be parts 11 through 20. In this letter, he is trying to console his mother because he has been exiled and he's basically trying to say, mom, chill the heck out. Exile ain't so bad if you're a stoic. You know, I still got a roof over my head. It's kind of a nice place. I can see the stars. It's not a big deal, right? So here we are, part 11, just continuing on with the letter. So 11. Next, need an exile regret his former dress and house? If he only wishes for these things because of their use to him, he will want neither roof nor garment, for it takes as little to cover the body as it does to feed it. Nature has annexed no difficult conditions to anything which man is obliged to do. If, however, he sighs for a purple robe steeped in floods of dye, interwoven with threads of gold and with many-colored artistic embroideries, then his poverty is his own fault not that of fortune. Even though you restore to him all that he has lost, you would do him no good, for he would have more unsatisfied ambitions, if restored, than he had unsatisfied wants when he was in exile. If he longs for furniture glittering with silver vases, plate which boasts the signature of antique artists, bronze which the mania of a small clique has rendered costly, slaves enough to crowd however large a house, purposefully overfed horses and precious stones of all countries, Whatever collections he may make of these, he will never satisfy his insatiable appetite any more than any than any amount of lick, lick, oh, any more than any amount of liquor will quench a thirst which arises not from the need of drink, but from the burning heat within a man. For this is not thirst, but disease. Nor does this take place only with regard to money and food, but every want which is caused by vice and not by necessity is of his of this nature. However much you supply it with with, you do not quench it, but intensify it. He who restrains himself within the limits prescribed by nature will not feel poverty. He who exceeds them will always be poor, however great his wealth may be. Even a place of exile suffices to provide one with necessaries. Whole whole kingdoms do not suffice to provide one with superfluities. It is the mind which makes men rich. This is that, this it is that accompanies them into exile, and in the most savage wilderness, after having found sufficient sustenance for the body, enjoys its own overflowing resources. The mind has no more connection with money than the immortal gods have with those things which are so highly valued by untutored intellects, sunk in the bondage of the flesh. Gems, gold, silver, and vast polished round tables are but earthly dross, which cannot be loved by a pure mind that is mindful of whence it came, is unblemished by sin, and which, when released from the body, will straightway soar aloft to the highest heaven. Meanwhile, as far as it is permitted by the 
hindrances of its, of its mortal limbs and this heavenly clog of the body by which it is surrounded, it examines divine things with swift and airy thought. From this it follows that no freeborn man who is akin to the gods and fit for any world and any age can ever be an exile. For his thoughts are directed to all the heavens and to all times past and future. This trumpery body, the prison and fetter of the spirit, may be tossed to this place or that. Upon, its tor- upon it, tortures, robberies, and diseases may work their will, but the spirit itself is holy and eternal, and upon it no one can lay hands. 12. That you may not suppose that I merely use the maxims of the philosophers to disparage the evils of poverty, which no one finds terrible, unless he thinks it is so, consider in the first place how many more poor people there are than rich, and yet you will not find that they are sadder or more anxious than the rich. Nay, I'm not sure that they are not happier, because they have fewer things to distract their minds. From these poor men, who often are not unhappy at their poverty, let us pass to the rich. How many occasions there are on which they are just like poor men? When they're on a journey, their baggage is cut down. Whenever they are obliged to travel fast, their train of attendance is dismissed. When they are serving in the army, how small a part of their property can they have with them, since camp kit discipline uh, forbids superfluities? Nor is it only temporary exigencies or desert places that put them on the same level as poor men. They have some days on which they become sick of their riches, dine reclining on the ground, put away all their gold and silver plate, and use earthenware. Madmen. They are always afraid of this for which they sometimes wish. Oh, how dense a stupidity! How great an ignorance of the truth they show when they flee from this thing and yet amuse themselves by playing with it. Whenever I look back to the great examples of antiquity, I feel ashamed to seek consolation for my poverty. Now that luxury has advanced so far in the present age that the allowance of an exile is larger than the inheritance of the princes of old, it is well known that Homer had one slave, that Plato had three, and that Zeno, who first taught the stern and masculine doctrine of the Stoics, had none. Yet, could anyone say that they lived wretchedly without himself, without, uh, sorry, without himself being thought a most pitiable wretch by all men? Meninius Agrippa, by whose meditation the patricians and plebeians were reconciled, was buried by public subscription. Attilus Regulus, while he was engaged in scattering the Carthaginians in Africa, wrote to the Senate that his hired servant had left him, and that consequently his farm was deserted, whereupon it was decreed that as long as Regulus was absent, it should be cultivated at the expense of the state. Was it not worth his while to have no slave, if thereby he obtained the Roman people for his farm bailiff? Scipio's daughters received their dowries from the treasury, yet their father had left them none. By Hercules, it was right for the Roman people to to pay tribute to Scipio for once, since he had exacted it forever from Carthage. Oh, how happy were those girls as husbands, who had the Roman people for their father-in-law. Can you think that those whose daughters dance in the ballet and marry with a settlement of a million sesterces are happier than Scipio, whose children received their dowry of old-fashioned brass money from their guardian senate? Can anyone despise poverty when she has such a noble descent to boast of? Can an exile be angry at any privation when Scipio could not afford a portion for his daughters, Regulus could not afford a hired laborer, Meninius could not afford a funeral? when all these men wants were supplied in a manner which rendered them a source of additional honor? Poverty, when such men as these plead its cause, is not only harmless, but positively attractive. 13. 
To this, one may answer, why do you thus ingeniously divide what can indeed be in, indeed be endured if taken singly, but which altogether are overwhelming? Change of place can be borne if nothing more than one's place be changed. Poverty can be borne if it be without disgrace, which is enough to cower spirits by itself. If anyone were to endeavor to frighten me with the number of my misfortunes, I should answer him as follows. If you have enough strength to resist any one part of your ill fortune, you will have enough to resist it all. If virtue has once hardened your mind, it renders it impervious to blows from any quarter. If avarice, the greatest pest of the human race, has left it, you will not be troubled by ambition. If you regard the end of your days not as a punishment, but as an ordinance of nature, no fear of anything else will dare to enter the breast which has cast out the fear of death. If you consider sexual passion to have been bestowed on mankind, not for the sake of pleasure, but for the continuance of the race, all other desires will pass harmlessly by one who is safe even from this secret plague, implanted in our very bosoms. Reason does not conquer vices one by one, but altogether. If reason is defeated, it is utterly defeated once and for all. Do you suppose that any wise man who relies entirely upon himself, who has set himself free from the ideas of the common herd, can be wrought upon by disgrace? A disgraceful death is worse even than disgrace. Yet Socrates bore the same expression of countenance with which he had rebuked thirty tyrants when he entered the prison and thereby took away the infamous character of the place. For the place which contained Socrates could not be regarded as a prison. Was any one ever so blind to the truth as to suppose that Marcus Cato was disgraced by his double defeat in his can candidate for the praetorship by the consulship? That disgrace fell on the praetorship and consulship which Cato honored by his candidature. No one is despised by others unless he be previously despised by himself. A groveling and abject mind may fall an easy prey to such contempt, but he who stands up against the most cruel misfortunes and overcomes those evils by which others would have been crushed, such a man, I say, turns his misfortunes into badges of honor, because we are so constituted as to admire nothing as much as a man who bears adversity bravely. At Athens, when, Arist when Aristides was being led to execution, everyone who met him cast down his eyes and groaned, as though not merely a just man, but justice herself were being put to death. Yet one man was found who spat in his face. He might have been disturbed at this, since he knew it could only be a foul-mouthed fellow that would have the heart to do so. He, however, wiped his face, and with a smile asked the magistrate who accompanied him to warn that man not to open his mouth so rudely again. To act thus was to treat contumely itself with contempt. I know that some say that there is nothing more terrible than disgrace, and that they would prefer death. To such man... To such men, I answer that even exile is often accompanied by no disgrace whatever. If a great man falls, he remains a great man after his fall. You can no more suppose that he is disgraced than when people tread upon the walls of a ruined temple, which the pious treat with as much respect as when they were standing. 14. Since, then, my dearest mother, you have no reason for endless weeping on my account, it follows that your tears must flow on your own. There are two causes for this. Either you're having lost my protection, or you're not being able to bear the mere fact of separation. The first of these I shall only touch upon lightly, for I know that your heart loves nothing belonging to your children except themselves. Let other mothers look to that, who make use of their son's authority with a woman's passion, who are ambitious through their sons because they cannot bear office themselves, who spend their son's inheritance and yet are eager to inherit it, eager to inherit it and who weary their sons by lending their eloquence to others. You have always rejoiced exceedingly in the successes of your sons, 
and have made no use of them whatever. You have always set bounds to your generosity, although you set none to your own. You, while a minor under the power of the head of the family, still used to make presents to your wealthy sons. You managed your inheritances with as much care as if you were working for your own, yet refrained from touching them as scrupulously as if they belonged to strangers. You have spared to use our influence as though you enjoyed other means of your own, and you have taken no part in the public offices to which we have been elected beyond rejoicing in our successes and paying your, our expenses. Your indulgence has never been tainted by any thought of profit, and you cannot regret the loss of your son for a reason which never had any weight with you before his exile. 15. All my powers of consolation must be directed to the other point, the true source of your maternal grief. You say, I am deprived of the embraces of my darling son. I cannot enjoy the pleasure of seeing him and hearing him talk. Where is he at whose sight I used to smooth my troubled brow, in whose keeping I used to deposit all my cares? Where is his conversation, of which I never could have enough? His studies, in which I used to take part with more than a woman's eagerness, with more than a mother's familiarity? Where are our meetings? The boyish delight in which he always showed at the sight of his mother. To all this, you add the actual places of our merrymaking and conversation, and what must needs have more power to move you than any, anything else, the traces of our late social life. For fortune treated you with the additional cruelty of allowing you to depart on the very third day before my ruin, without a trace of anxiety and not fearing anything of the kind. It was well that we had been separated by a vast distance. It was well that an absence of some years had prepared you to bear this blow. You came home not to take any pleasure in your son, but to get rid of the habit of longing for him. Had you been absent long before, you would have borne it more bravely, as the very length of your absence would have moderated your longing to see me. Had you never gone away, you would at any rate have gained one last advantage in seeing your son for two days longer. It As it was, cruel fate so arranged it that you were not present with me during my good fortune, and yet have not become accustomed to my absence. But the harder these things are to bear, the more virtue you must summon to your aid, and the more bravely you must struggle, uh, and the more bravely you must struggle, as it were, with an enemy whom you know well and whom you have already conquered. This blood did not flow from a body previously unhurt. You have been struck through the scar of an old wound. Sixteen. You have no grounds for excusing yourself on the ground of being a woman who has set sort of right to weep without restraint. Who ha oh, sorry, who has a sort of right to weep without restraint, though not without limit. For this reason, our ancestors allotted a space of ten months mourning for women who had lost their husbands, thus settling the violence of a woman's grief by a public ordinance. They did not forbid them to mourn, but they set limits to their grief. For while it was a foolish weakness to give way to endless grief when you lose one of those dearest to you, yet it shows an unnatural hardness of heart to express no grief at all. The best middle course between affection and hard common sense is both to feel regret and to restrain it. You need not look at certain women whose sorrow, when once begun, has been ended only by death. You know some, after the loss of their sons, have never laid aside the garb of mourning. You are consti constitutionally stronger than these." and from you more is required. You cannot avail yourself of the excuse of being a woman, for you have no womanish vices. Unchastity, the greatest evil of this age, has never classed you with the majority of women. You have not been tempted either by gems or by pearls. Riches have not allured you into thinking them the greatest blessing that a man can own. Respectably brought up as you were in an old-fashioned and strict household, you have never been led astray by that imitation of others which is so full of danger even to virtuous women." You have never been ashamed of your 
fruitfulness as though it were a reproach to your youth. You never concealed the signs of pregnancy as though it were unbecoming burden, nor did you ever destroy your expected child within your womb after the fashion of many other women, whose attractions are to be found in their beauty alone. You never defiled your face with paints or cosmetics. You never liked clothes which showed the figure as plainly as though it were naked. Your sole ornament has been a consummate loveliness which no time can impair. Your greatest glory has been your modesty. You cannot, therefore, plead your womanhood as an excuse for your grief, because your virtues have raised you above it. You ought to be as superior to womanish tears as you are to womanish vices. Every woman would not allow you to pine, sorry, even women would not allow you to pine away after receiving this blow, but would bid you quickly and calmly go through the necessary amount of mourning, and then to arise and shake it off. I mean, if you are willing to take as your models those women whose eminent virtue has given them a place among even greater men. Misfortune reduced the number of Cornelius' children from twelve to two. If you count the number of their deaths, Cornelia had lost ten. If you weigh them, she had lost the Gracchi. Nevertheless, when her friends were weeping around her and, and using two bitter imprecations against her fate, she forbade them to blame fortune for having deprived her sons, uh, her of her sons, the Gracchi. Such ought to have been the mother of him who, when speaking in the forum, said, Would you speak e evil of the mother who bore me? The mother's speech seems to me to show a far greater spirit. The son set a high value on the birth of the Gracchi. The mother set an equal value on their deaths. Rutilia followed her son Coda into exile and was so passionately attached to him that she could bear exile better than absence from him. Nor did she return home before her son did so, after he had been restored and had been raised to honor in the Republic. She bore his death as bravely as she had borne his exile. No one saw any traces of tears upon her cheeks after she had buried her son. She displayed her courage when, she was, when he was banished, her wisdom when he died. She allowed no consideration either to interfere with her affection or to force her to protract a useless and foolish mourning. These are the women with whom I wish you to be numbered. You have the best reasons for restraining and suppressing your sorrow as they did because you have always imitated, imitated their lives. 17. I am aware that this is a matter which is not in our power and that none of the passions, least of all that which arises from grief, are obedient to our wishes. Indeed, it is overbearing and obstinate, and stubbornly rejects all remedies. We sometimes wish to crush it and to swallow our emotion, but nevertheless, tears flow over our carefully arranged and made-up countenance. Sometimes we occupy our minds with public spectacles and shows of gladiators, but during the very sights by which it is amused, the mind is wrung by slight touches of sorrow. It is better, therefore, to conquer it than to cheat it. For a grief which has been deceived and driven away either by pleasure or by business arises again and its period of rest does but give it strength for a more terrible attack. But a grief which has been conquered by reason is appeased forever. I shall not, then, give you the advice which so many, I know, adopt, that you should distract your thoughts by a long journey or amuse them by a beautiful one, that you should spend much of your time in the careful examination of accounts and the management of your estate, that you should keep constantly engaging in new enterprises. All these things avail but little, and do not cure, but merely obstruct our sorrow." I had rather it should be brought to an end than it should be cheated, and therefore I would fain lead you to the study of philosophy, the true place of refuge for all those who are flying from the cruelty of fortune. This will heal your wounds and take away all your sadness. To this you would now have to apply yourself, even though you have never done so before. But as far as my father's old-fashioned strictness permitted, you have gained a superficial, though not a, not a thorough knowledge of all liberal studies. Would that my father 
most excellent man that he was, had been less devoted to the customs of our ancestors, and had been willing to have you thoroughly instructed in the elements of philosophy, instead of receiving a mere smattering of it. I should not now need to be providing you with the means of struggling against fortune, but you would offer them to me. But he did not allow you to pursue your studies far because some women use literature to teach them luxury instead of wisdom. Still, thanks to your keen intellectual appetite, you learned more than one could have expected in the time. You laid the foundations of all good learning. Now return to them. They will render you safe. They will console you and charm you. If once they have thoroughly entered your mind, grief, anxiety, the distress of vain suffering will never gain admittance thither. Your breast will not be open to any of these. Against all other vices, it has long been closed. Philosophy is your most trustworthy guardian, and it alone can save you from the attacks of fortune. 18. Since, however, you require something to lean upon until you can reach that haven of rest which philosophy offers to you, I wish in the meantime to point out to you the consolations which you have. Look at my two brothers. While they are safe, you have no grounds for complaint against fortune. You can derive pleasure from the virtues of each of them, different as they are. The one has gained high office by attention to business, the other has philosophically despised it. Rejoice in the great place of one of your sons, and in the peaceful retirement of the other, in the filial affection of both. I know my brother's most secret motives. The one adorns his high office in order to confer luster upon you, the other has withdrawn from the world into his life of quiet and contemplation that he may have full enjoyment of your society. Fortune has consulted both... Uh, your safety and your pleasure in her her disposal of your two sons. You may be protected by the authority of the one and delighted by the literary leisure of the other. They will vie with one another in dutiful affection to you, and the loss of one son will be supplied by the love of two others. I can confidently promise that you will find nothing wanting in your sons except their number. Now then, turn your eyes from them to your grandchildren, to Marcus, that most engaging child whose sight no sorrow can withstand. No grief can be so great or so fresh in anyone's bosom as not be charmed away by his presence. Where are the tears which his joyousness could not dry? Whose heart is so nipped by sorrow that his animation would not cause it to dilate? Who would not be rendered mirthful by his playfulness? Who would not be attracted and made to forget his gloomy thoughts by that prattle to which no one can ever be weary of listening? I pray the gods that he may survive us, May all the cruelty of fate exhaust itself on me and go no further. May all the sorrow destined for my mother and my grandmother fall upon me. But let all the rest flourish as they do now. I shall make no complaints about my childlessness or my exile, if only my sacrifice may be received as a sufficient atonement and my family suffer suffer nothing more. Hold in your bosom Novatilla, who soon will present you with great-grandchildren, she whom I had so entirely adopted and made my own, that now that she has lost me, seems like an orphan, even though her father is alive. Love her for my sake as well as for her own. Fortune has lately deprived her of her mother. Your affection will be able to prevent her really feeling the loss of the mother whom she mourns. Take this opportunity of forming and strengthening her principles. Nothing sinks so deeply into the mind as the teaching which we receive in our earliest years. Let her become accustomed to hearing your discourses. Let her character be molded according to your pleasure. She will gain much even if you give her nothing more than your example. This continually recurring duty will be a remedy in itself. For when your mind is full of maternal sorrow, nothing can distract it from its grief except either philosophic argument or honorable work. I should count your father among your greatest consolations, were he not absent. As it is, judge from your affection for me what his affection is for you, 
and then you will see how much more just it is that you should be preserved for him than that you should be sacrificed to me. Whenever your keenest paroxysms of grief assail you and bid you give way to them, think of your father. By giving him so many grandchildren and great-grandchildren, you have made yourself no longer his only daughter, but you alone can crown his prosperous life by a happy end. As long as he is alive, it is impiety for you to regret having been born. Just two more. 19. I have hitherto said nothing of your chief source of consolation, your sister, that most faithful heart which shares all your sorrows as fully as your own, and who feels for all of us like a mother. With her you have mingled your tears. On her bosom you have tasted your first repose. She always feels for your troubles, and when, I'm in, when I am in the case, she does not grieve for you alone. It was in her arms that I was carried into Rome. By her affection and motherly nursing, I regained my strength after a long period of sickness. She enlarged her influence to obtain the office of Caester for me, and her fondness for me made her conquer a shyness which at other times made her shrink from speaking to or loudly greeting her friends. Neither her retired mode of life nor her country-bred modesty, at a time when so many women display such boldness of manner, her placidity nor her habits of solitary seclusion prevented her from becoming actually ambitious on my account. Here, my dearest mother, is a source from which you may gain true consolation. Join yourself, as far as you are able to, to her. Bind yourself to her by the closest embraces. Those who are in sorrow are wont to flee from those who are dearest to them, and to seek liberty for the indulgence of their grief. Do you let her share your every thought if uh, do do you let her share your every thought? If you wish to nurse your grief, she will be your companion. If you wish to lay it aside, she will bring it to an end. If, however, uh, I rightly underestimated the wisdom of that most perfect woman, she will not suffer you to waste your life in unprofitable mourning and will tell you what happened in her own instance, which I myself witnessed. During a sea voyage, she lost a beloved husband, my uncle, whom she married when a maiden. She endured at the same time grief for him and fear for herself, and at last, though shipwrecked, nevertheless rescued his body from the vanquished tempest. How many noble deeds are known to fame? If only she had had the simple-minded agents to admire her virtues, how many brilliant intellects would have vied with one another in singing the praises of a wife who forgot the weakness of her sex, forgot the perils of the sea, which terrify even the boldest, exposed herself to death in order to lay him in the earth, and who was so eager to give him decent burial that she cared nothing about whether she shared it or no. All the poets have made the wife famous who gave herself to death instead of her husband. My aunt did more when she risked her life in order to give her husband a tomb. It shows greater love to endure the same peril for a less important end. After this, no one need wonder that for 16 years during which her husband governed the province of Egypt, she was never beheld in public, never admitted to any natives, uh, never admitted any of the natives to her house, never begged any favor of her husband, and never allowed anyone to beg of her. Thus it came to pass that a gossiping province, ingenious in inventing scandal about its rulers, in which even the blameless often incurred disgrace, respected her as a singular example of uprightness, never made free with her name, a remarkable piece of self-restraint among a people who will risk everything rather than forgo a jest, and that at the present time it hopes for another governor's wife like her, although it has no reasonable expectation of ever seeing one. It would have been greatly to her credit if the province had approved her conduct for a space of 16 years. It was much more creditable to her that it knew not of her existence. I do not remind you of this in order to celebrate her praises, 
for to say, take such scanty notice of them is to cur curtail them, but in order that you may understand the magnanim magnanimity of a woman who has not yielded either to ambition or to avarice, those twin attendants and scourges of authority, who, when her ship was disabled and her own death was impending, was not restrained by fear from keeping fast hold of her husband's dead body, and who sought now to escape from the wreck, but how to carry him out of it with her. You must now show a virtue equal to hers. Recall your mind from grief, and take care that no one may think that you are sorry that you have borne a son. And finally, 20. However, since it is necessary, whatever you do, that your thoughts should sometimes revert to me, and that I should now be presented to your mind more often than your other children, not because they are less dear to you, but because it is natural to lay one's hands more often upon a place that pains one, learn how you are to think of me. I am as joyous and cheerful as in my best days. Indeed, these days are my best, because my mind is relieved from all pressure of business and is at leisure to attend to its own affairs, and at one time amuses itself with lighter studies, at another eagerly presses its inquiries into its own nature and that of the universe. First, it considers the countries of the world and their position, then the character of the sea which flows between them, and the alternate ebbings and flowings of its tides. Next, it investigates all the terrors which hang between heaven and earth, the region which is torn asunder by thunderings, lightnings, gusts of wind, vapor, showers of snow and hail. Finally, having traversed every one of the realms below, it soars to the highest heaven, enjoys the noblest of all spectacles, that of things divine, and, remembering itself to be eternal, reviews all that has been and all that will be forever and ever. All right, that is the end of our little essay here. So this is probably the last episode that I'm able to record before I take off, which means that you probably won't have an episode on Tuesday the 4th. I get back on the 5th, and then we, I think, should all be back in town and ready to record for the next week. So probably nothing coming the 4th unless I get, you know, random inspiration and, uh, and a good source for an essay today. But, you know, I got Christmas shopping to do. So uh, oh yeah, you are hearing this way after I recorded it. In any case, we'll, we're sorry for having nothing on the 4th, but uh, enjoy your new year, right? Go after those new year's resolutions with fervor. And if you don't actually have the constitution to do that, make a really easy new year's resolution. Like this morning, I will walk to the fridge. That's a good one. That's, that's easy. You feel good after that. All right. This is AJ signing off. Thanks for listening and happy holidays from all of us here at Classical Stuff. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.